July 25th, 1718. The merchant ship Delicia is anchored outside the harbor entrance at Nassau on the island of New Providence. On board is 39-year-old Captain Woods Rogers, here to take up his post as the first royal governor of the Bahamas. Rogers draws himself up to his full height, striking the deck with his cane. He bears the battle scars of an experienced mariner, a shattered heel and disfigured face. In a former life, Rogers sailed as a privateer. He made his name plundering Spanish ships. Not so different really to the pirate scum he's been sent to eradicate, though it's doubtful Rogers sees it that way. At 460 tons, the Delicia is too big to risk entering the shallow harbor without a pilot. So for now, Rogers can only speculate on the welcome that awaits him. He knows that Nassau is a nest of pirates. That's why he's here, to rid the Bahamas of piracy. Rogers is backed by three Royal Navy warships, four armed merchantmen, and a company of infantry. His own ship, Delicia, packs an impressive 30 guns. But Rogers has heard the stories. These pirates were known to command mighty 40-gun frigates like the Widder and Queen Anne's Revenge. Despite the fleet's massive firepower, he must have nervously wondered, will it be enough? Rogers does have another weapon in his armory, the King's Pardon. Any pirate who surrenders will be spared, returning to civilization and avoiding the hangman. He hopes many of them will see sense. Commodore Chamberlain, who commands the naval squadron, has sent the HMS Rose ahead to get the lie of the land and to engage a pilot to guide the larger vessels into port. As the Rose enters the main harbor channel, her sailors are met by a grim sight and an unholy stench. The derelict waterfront is littered with filth. An immense pile of raw cowhides lies rotting on the beach. The air is foul and unhealthy. With its tumble-down shacks and flimsy tents, the place looks more like a shantytown than the capital of a crown colony. The harbour entrance presents an equally bleak picture, like a graveyard. Ships half-submerged, timbers scorched and burnt, prizes picked to the bones. The only vessels in good order are the pirate ships at anchor, blocking their progress. The biggest is a large French brigantine, with an English flag fluttering from her topmast. But if the crew of the Rose believe she's a friendly vessel, they have another thing coming. The French ship opens fire. One of the cannonballs rips through the Rose's rigging. Instead of returning fire, the Rose's captain raises the white flag of truce, lowers a longboat, and sends an officer to parley with the pirates. Later, the officer reports that the ship 
is crewed by a rebellious rabble of drunkards, commanded by an Englishman named Charles Vane. The Rose's captain writes, Vane promised to use his utmost endeavor to burn us and all the vessels in the harbor that night. It's a warning that may come back to haunt them. Vane also sends a letter to Governor Rogers. It sets out the terms under which Vane is prepared to accept the pardon. Rogers lets out a snort of derision as he crumples the letter to a ball. Who does this Vane think he is, dictating terms indeed? Does he really think he can take on a squadron of warships on his own? The fellow must be mad. Or drunk. Probably both. Rogers issues his orders for the night and retires to bed in good spirits. This is going to be easier than he thought. The Rose is joined in the shallow harbor by the smaller ships of the governor's fleet. They line up at the entrance, blocking Vane in. The Delicia continues to wait outside. It's a warm night. In his cabin, Woods Rogers can't sleep. Although he tried to dismiss it, the arrogance of Vane's letter unsettles him. He stretches out and tries to relax. It won't be long before he is installed as the rightful governor of the Bahamas, and he can teach the villain a lesson. Across the water, however, it seems Charles Vane has other plans. Around midnight, Woods Rogers wakes in a cold sweat. Hearing the commotion, he bursts out of his cabin and onto the quarterdeck. The night sky is split by an orange glow in the distance. He rushes to join a crowd of men, staring in horror at the scene unfolding before them. The huge French merchant ship is ablaze. A flaming meteor cutting through the darkness and it bearing down on the line of English ships blockading the harbor. Roger's mouth drops open. Vane has turned his greatest prize into a fire ship. It's a spectacular gesture of defiance. More than that, it could spell disaster to the fleet. The English vessels are not just made of wood, they're also loaded with gunpowder. It's like a match thrown into a barrel of fireworks. And all Woods Rogers can do is watch. I'm Tom Morton. And welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction.
The summer of 1718 is a pivotal moment in the struggle between the authorities and the pirates of the Caribbean. The previous year had seen pirate depredations reach an all-time high. The confidence of the pirates knew no bounds. They even considered Royal Navy vessels fair game. Colonial officials warned that unless some effectual and immediate protection is sent, the whole trade from Great Britain to those parts will not only be obstructed, but will be in imminent danger of being lost. The arrival of Woods Rogers and his squadron of ships represents the Crown's response to that appeal. Rogers has been sent to reclaim the pirate's legendary home, Nassau, on the island of New Providence. If he can do that, he will effectively bring to an end the golden age of pirates. Or so he hopes. He has in his armory two key weapons to divide and defeat the pirates, the King's Pardon and naval firepower carrot and stick. Many pirates see his arrival as the beginning of the end. But not Charles Vane. His determination to hold out against the might of the British Empire runs deep. Perhaps he simply can't bear to give up the only way of life he knows. Or perhaps he nurses a deep-seated hatred of the crown and all who serve it. Is he an idealist dreaming of revolution? or a ruthless criminal hell-bent on destruction? What is it that inspires Vane to take this last, desperate stand against the newly arrived governor? Who is the real Charles Vane? Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Why We Love Pirates, The Hunt for Captain Kidd and How He Changed Piracy Forever. Charles Vane was a pirate who was known to be active between 1716 and 1720. There is very, very little known about his life at all before 1716, except that he was born in England, possibly around 1680. He doesn't really show up in the historical record until 1716, when he became known as one of the pirates who was salvaging the wreckage of the Spanish treasure fleet off the coast of Florida with the pirate Henry Jennings, who was one of the major privateers during the War of Spanish Succession. So what we do know is that Charles Vane sailed with Henry Jennings. They had fought together in the War of Spanish Succession, and he had worked with Jennings for quite some time before he set out solo on his own. You may recall from earlier episodes, Henry Jennings took the young Charles Vane with him on his path to piracy. But was he more than just a captain? A mentor, perhaps? Some even suggest that they share political motivations. Specifically, a desire to see the exiled monarch, James Stuart, return to the British throne, referred to as the Jacobite cause. Colin Woodard is a journalist and author of The Republic of Pirates. A lot of the higher social status people who got involved in this golden age of piracy, people like Henry Jennings, who had his estate in Jamaica, appear to have been motivated for political reasons, too. There's all sorts of evidence tying these various people to the Jacobite cause or the cause of returning the opposed Stuarts to the throne of England, and that many of them had been involved in, like Jennings in the 1715 uprising. In any case, after Jennings and Vane arrive in Nassau, Vane forged bonds with a number of other pirates. Together, they quickly became known as the Flying Gang. 
He was interesting because he had lots of different relationships with pirates, such as he was known to be friends with the pirate Blackbeard, or at least a friendly acquaintance with Blackbeard. He was also quite known for sailing with the pirate who would become known as Calico Jack Rackham. The two of them sailed for quite some time. But some experts suggest that these relationships could be stormy, and the pirates quickly split into rival camps, vying for control of Nassau, control that Vane would not give up without a fight. There are all these power bases that form in that town that are working against each other. That's what the Pirate Republic in Nassau was like under the pirates. The bad blood forming between these factions. Track in politics, because Jennings is involved in the Jacobite uprising. Many of these other pirates may not have cared about that. And the most obvious and enduring partisan power bases were the split between Hornigold and his faction to include Bellamy and Thatch. Then on the other side, Henry Jennings and his lieutenants and protégés, including most notoriously Charles Vane. By 1718, the pirates on Nassau may have put any differences aside, as they face an existential threat. There is now only one issue that everyone is talking about. The King's Pardon. An essential part of Woods Rogers' plan to reclaim the Bahamas. In fact, news of the pardon reaches the colonies a whole six months before Woods Rogers. It's Christmas Day, 1717, when Captain Vincent Pierce of New York hears of the King's proclamation. The city is paralyzed by a snowstorm, but Pierce doesn't let the weather get in his way. Pierce is commander of a small naval frigate, HMS Phoenix. It's a relatively junior command. So what he does next is either very brave were extremely reckless. So in the dead of winter, he pulls up anchor and basically takes it upon himself to sail to Nassau to deliver the news to the pirates that confront them firsthand. Now, by then, the pirates actually knew about the pardon because word had gotten to Bermuda and the governor in Bermuda, he sent his son racing in a Bermuda sloop down to Nassau to inform the pirates. So even before the intrepid Captain Pierce arrives, the news of the pardon is already causing tremors in Nassau. A fault line is threatening to tear the pirate community apart. On one side are the pirates who can't wait to take the king's pardon. Incredibly, they are led by the founder of the Pirate Republic himself, Benjamin Hornigold. Though some may have seen it coming. Benjamin Hornigold would become the leading figure in the pro-pardon camp. You're somebody who early on didn't want to attack English vessels, right? Was motivated primarily to attack the old enemies during the War of Spanish Secession, Spanish and French. It caused him trouble early in his career with pirates who wanted to attack all vessels defecting. And so not surprising that Hornigold, with his relatively circumspect use of force, apparently sort of having qualms about descending into total criminality as opposed to trying to get revenge against the Spanish Gardas Costas and the like, that he would be one of the people who embraced the pardon. Hornigold and his supporters take over the fortress at Nassau, raising the Union Jack as a sign of their intentions. But not everyone sees eye to eye with Hornigold. An angry mob rushes the fortress, they force their way in and chase out the pro-pardon contingent. They tear down the Union Jack and hoist another flag in its place, the Banner of Death, the Black Flag. At the head of the cheering pack of pirate loyalists 
is Charles Vane. The Phoenix sails into Nassau Harbour on the morning of February 23, 1718. She is met by the sight of the Jolly Roger flying above the fortress. It must have given the young captain pause for thought. Pierce doesn't have the authority to issue pardons himself. That could only be done by a colonial governor, and the Bahamas hasn't seen one of those in quite some time. Neither does Pierce have the firepower to enforce the pardon. If the pirates had wanted to overwhelm him, they could have easily done so. But attacking a Royal Navy vessel could have dire consequences. This leads to a tense standoff on the island. All Pierce can do is sound the pirates out and prepare the ground for Woods Rogers. Pierce sends ashore his second-in-command, Lieutenant Simmons, under a white flag of truce. Simmons carries copies of the proclamation to distribute among the population. The young lieutenant must have been mightily relieved by the welcome he receives. According to Pierce, he was met by a great number of pirates with much civility, and when he read out the proclamation, it was greeted with a great deal of joy. But as we've seen, not everyone is in favor of the pardon. Two big political parties, right? The pro-pardon camp is like, oh my gosh, we thought we'd gone off into piracy forever, and now it turns out we can keep all of our stolen treasure and a get-out-of-jail-free card and return to regular life. Great, let's do it. And a lot of other pirates are like, no way. We were exploited by these jerks and we're going to keep it up, right? We're going to keep fighting. We love the pirate's life. We hate the king and the captains and all authority. That latter group was definitely Charles Vane's group. It's hard to imagine refusing the golden opportunity presented by the pardon. Some think Vane's opposition comes from his political beliefs. It seems Vane harbors an extreme hatred of the crown, a die-hard anti-monarchist. In terms of whether or not Charles Vane had a political stance as a motivation for his piracy, it's very hard to say. What we do know is Vane was amongst the pirates who had a very strong hatred towards King George at the time. And that's probably one of the reasons why he refused to accept a pardon. Then again, given Vane's association with the Jacobite Henry Jennings, it may be King George, the German usurper, that Vane specifically opposes. Among the pirate faction that formed that was against taking the king's pardon, the diehard pirates, one thing they had in common is they seemed to include many of the people who were motivated for political reasons, especially this Jacobite-oriented group of pirates, right? People who maybe they had many reasons to be in piracy, but one of them also seemed to be opposition to the Hanoverians taking over the throne, and allegiance to the pretender, James Stewart, in exile in France. It's a compelling idea. Political refugees fighting for a just cause. But the evidence is limited. Ideological or not, the pirates on Nassau clearly represented open rebellion against the crown. Nassau wasn't any kind of organized state, but all of these various pirates with different motivations, many of them leading what they thought of as a social uprising, some of them with Jacobite sympathies, and others probably just seizing an opportunity to raid vessels or participate in the ancillary economy. But in the end, they were one community. The pardon is intended to splinter that community. 
So, with emotions running hot, Pierce faces a volatile situation as he sails into Nassau Harbor aboard the Phoenix that February morning in 1718. It was a very dangerous spot for a while for the Phoenix to be in. Essentially, the young captain there, Vincent Pierce, brought news of the pardon and set up essentially a pardon station, right? He took down a list of people wanting to take the king's pardon from him as a representative of the king. And it exists, you know, you're able to go through it in the archives. Vane initially refuses to sign. Other leading refuseniks include Paulsgrave Williams, Edward England, and John Rackham a.k.a. Calico Jack. Rackham is Vane's quartermaster and a close ally. Vane leaves Nassau in his sloop, the Lark, with a skeleton crew of only 16 men. You might think that Pierce would be glad to see the back of him. But he knows that Vane is the key to winning over the rest of the pirates. He either has to get Vane on side or defeat him. One thing he can't do is ignore him. Vane has as many enemies as he has friends in Nassau. Someone tips Pierce off. The rumor is Vane is hiding out in a secluded bay at a nearby islet called Buscus Key. Pierce tracks Vane down to his hiding place. The Navy captain's tactics are simple. He maneuvers the Phoenix so that it blocks Vane's way out. Then, opens fire. Vane and his men are penned in and outgunned. For once in his life, Vane takes the pragmatic choice. Sensing the turning tide, he surrenders, telling Pierce that they were on their way to Nassau to take the king's pardon anyway. Pierce is not taken in. He claps the pirates in irons, When Pierce arrives back in Nassau, he's greeted by a delegation of pro-pardon pirates, led by Benjamin Hornigold. Whether in sympathy or thinking strategically, Hornigold advises the inexperienced Pierce to let Vane go. Hornigold argues that if Pierce shows clemency, more pirates will come over to him. It's a tense moment. By rights, Vane and his crew should hang, but that might undo all the good that Pierce has already accomplished. Reluctantly, he releases Vane. Vane is only too willing to agree to take the king's pardon. He signs the pledge, buying himself some time. His name is one of the last on Pierce's list, but actions speak louder than words, and it's not long before Vane's actions reveal his true colors. He persuades a gang of about 40 men to break out of Nassau Harbor in two boats and escape Pierce's authority. The first thing he does is capture a Jamaican sloop. He raises the pirate flag and is back in business, an unrepentant pirate. All this happens right under Captain Pierce's nose. The young captain tries to persuade the ex-pirates of Nassau to help him bring Vane in. Unsurprisingly, they refuse. In fact, Vane's company grows to over 70, including three of Captain Pierce's own sailors. A revolution is brewing once again. In frustration and perhaps fear, 
P.S. heads back to New York, leaving Vane free to rampage across the Bahamas, which is exactly what he does. It's April 14th, 1718, near Rum Cay Island. Alerted by his crew, the captain of the sloop Diamond, John Tibby, sees a nimble sloop bearing down on him. Surely not, he thinks. But a glance through the eyeglass confirms it. The black flag flying from the mast, death's head flapping defiantly, the embroidered skull laughing at him. Tibby curses and anxiously wrings his hands. The chances are if he gives them what he wants, no one will get hurt. But still, pirates! News of the pardon is widespread. He hoped these waters were safer now. Tibby bites down on his lip nervously. The sloop fires across his bow. Tibby hoists the white flag in surrender. Let's get this over with, he thinks. What choice does he have? The pirates come aboard. Armed to the teeth, they wave their cutlasses threateningly and fire their muskets into the air. Tibby has a bad feeling about this. The pirates are obviously drunk. They're out of control, unpredictable. Anything could happen. With an arrogant leer, the pirate captain informs Tibby that he has just been boarded by Captain Charles Vane. The swagger and snarl is to be expected, but is there something else glinting in this man's eye? Cruelty, perhaps. A cold contempt. Tibby feels himself manhandled as the pirates yell their demands at him. Soon the jostling turns into abuse, then violence. He is punched to the deck. He can see his crew are receiving the same treatment. Captain Tibby rolls into a ball to shield himself from blows. Cries out for mercy. Vane barks out a command and Tibby's attackers break off. Under Vane's direction, the pirates now turn on one of Tibby's crewmen, Nathaniel Caitling. They tie his hands and sling a noose around his neck. They throw the rope over a beam and hoist Caitling's writhing body into the air. Tibby watches in horror as Caitling's desperate thrashing ceases. Eventually, the pirates release the rope and Caitling's body crashes to the deck. To Tibby's relief, he sees Caitling stir as he lies there. He's just about alive, but one of the pirates notices it too. The villain swings his cutlass and brings it down. A howl of pain splits the air as the blade lands just above Caitling's collarbone. The pirate draws back his sword to strike again, but thankfully, his hand is stayed by one of his comrades. Vane and his men set fire to the diamond. They make off with 800 pieces of silver and a black enslaved man. Later the same day, he attacks another sloop, the William and Martha. If the reports are to be believed, Vane engages in, or tolerates, further acts of wanton cruelty. 
According to the deposition of the captain, Edward North, Vane and his men pick on one man in particular, who they bound, hands and feet tied upon his back, down to the bowsprit, with matches to his eyes burning and a pistol loaded, as he supposes, with the muzzle into his mouth, thereby to oblige him to confess what money was on board. North's testimony provides further intriguing details. He claims he overheard Vane's men drinking a toast to the damnation of King George and all the higher powers. Further evidence of Jacobite sympathies? Or are they just the drunken oaths of men who detest the rules of law? The reports of Vane's exploits spread far and wide. On this voyage alone, he attacks twelve vessels. In the process, he earns himself a reputation for exceptional sadism. His conduct marks him out as a different kind of pirate. Charles Vane quickly became known for his cruelty to the point where he was pretty sadistic and some might even say psychopathic. He attacked ships without mercy. He never would give what they called quarter, meaning he would attack ships with the intent of killing people who got in his way. When they would catch victims, he had no qualms about taking them onto the ship, holding them hostages and torturing them through beatings, sometimes maiming the victims by cutting off their ears. He would hold them for indiscriminate amounts of time. He had no problem going in, negotiating with captains and then going against it immediately and killing them if they got into his way. And he gained this reputation very fast. When people heard the name Charles Vane, they would immediately get very frightened. But how far can we believe these stories? Contemporary accounts of pirates' conduct often come from their victims, men like Captain Tibby and Nathaniel Caitling. It's possible they may exaggerate the pirates' barbarity to explain the loss of their ships and cargo. Nobody wants to be seen as a coward, surrendering without a fight. At the same time, stories like this are picked up and sensationalized by the newspapers of the day. Papers like the Boston Newsletter, the media perception of piracy around 1717 drastically changed from how it had been before. As we're going directly into the war on piracy, the articles change. They transition from kind of being these generic crime reports to being these centers of moral outrage with really graphic, brutal descriptions of what the pirates would do. And not only just going into graphic, brutal descriptions, but discussing the kind of moral outrage it should have or the newspaper kind of appealing to the wider audience's sensibilities. It wasn't just a way to really try to turn people against pirates. It was a great way to get some 18th century clickbait to sell and get this stuff out of the public to make loads of money. And it worked. It was in Vane's interests to have such stories circulating about him he knows that a fearsome reputation will make victims more compliant. But does Vane go further than he needs to? Charles Vane knew the terror that he was really wreaking onto people. And pirates did depend on a reputation of being these horrific, cruel, frightening people because it got people to want to surrender very fast. Well. Charles Vane took this to a whole new level because unlike pirates like Blackbeard who used this terror as kind of just theater, Charles Vane took it literally. And he would go onto ships and he would absolutely show what a horrific, cruel terror he would be. 
And he wasn't for theater. He gave threats and he carried them out plus more. And so people were absolutely terrified knowing he was coming because if they didn't die, they were going to suffer very much at his hand. Vane returns to Nassau on April 28th, 1718. Rumors are rife that a Royal Navy force is en route to the Bahamas, bringing with them a new governor. Whilst Vane is prepared to fight for their home, many pirates intend to take the pardon. Vane's hatred for the authorities is matched only by his contempt for these reformed pirates. These include his former mentor, Henry Jennings. In fact, there are even rumors that Jennings has accepted a commission from Governor Bennett of Bermuda to hunt pirates. Jennings' betrayal must have hit Vane hard. After all, it was Jennings who had initiated him into the life of a pirate, a founding member of the Pirate Republic. Jennings had even been the standard bearer for the Jacobite cause. Vane becomes increasingly isolated pushing him to ever greater acts of defiance. In May 1718, he sets out in the Lark on another pirate cruise. One of his most significant prizes is the sloop Richard and John, which he takes near Crockett Island in the Bahamas. The significance is not so much the value of the cargo as who the ship belongs to. One of the owners is John Cockrum, another founding member of Nassau, and another prominent member of the pro-pardon faction. Pirate humiliates ex-pirate? Perhaps Vane is making a point. It's July 4th, 1718. A few months later, Vane is back in Nassau once again. He leads a fleet of prize ships into the harbor. The biggest and richest of these is a French brigantine. In less than a month, he will set fire to this very ship and steer it towards the English battleships that have come to curtail his exploits. But for now, Vane is riding high. There's a woodcut illustration of Vane in Charles Johnson's 1724 book, A General History of Pirates. It shows a man in a typical wig of the period, in a long dress coat, sword in one hand, the other hand pointing commandingly to the horizon. The pose is domineering and confident. And although it's obviously not drawn from life, it's just how we might imagine Vane as he strides through the streets of Nassau, making his presence known. It's said that he swaggered about the town threatening to burn down buildings. According to Captain Johnson, though he committed no murders, his behavior was extremely insolent to all who were not as great villains as himself. The town's respectable citizens, if there are any left, likely cower behind their doors. The former pirates who intend to take the king's pardon are probably just as anxious. Vane is the de facto ruler of New Providence. No ship may enter or leave Nassau Harbor without his say-so. According to A General History of the Pirates, he swore while he was in the harbor that he would suffer no other governor than himself. His oath remains unchallenged for 20 days. Then, 
in July of 1718, a rival governor arrives, one with royal authority. Woods Rogers and his crew, including the two Royal Navy frigates and a sloop of war, surprised him in the harbor and he couldn't get out. There's a back entrance to Nassau Harbor that the pirates would flee through in small sloops, but this great big frigate-sized ship that Bain had, he couldn't do so. So he was trapped in the harbor. So what does he do in the middle of the night? He sets the entire ship on fire as a fire ship with tar all over it and all the guns double loaded, knowing that when the fire engulfs the ship, it'll set the gunpowder on fire and suddenly all the guns will fire. And he basically lines it up. You know, you have a crewman stay on the ship and you sail it straight at the anchored vessels that Woods Rogers has at the mouth of the harbor to destroy them. It's after midnight on July 26, 1718, and Vane's fireship barrels down on the Royal Navy vessels. The sailors on board the Rose and her sister ships act quickly. They cut their anchor ropes with axes and beat a hasty retreat from the harbor, narrowly averting disaster. At six the following morning, a local pilot comes aboard the Milford to guide her and the other larger ships including the Delicia, into harbor. But for some reason, the pilot miscalculates. First the Milford, and then the Delicia run aground on the harbor sandbar. It could have been a genuine mistake. Did Rogers suspect deliberate sabotage? The pilot was no doubt an ex-pirate, a sign of where the pilot's true loyalties lay? Or perhaps he was just scared of what Vane might do to him. Certainly, it's an inauspicious and humiliating start to Governor Rogers' term of office. We can imagine Vane laughing heartily as he escapes in the opposite direction, black flags flying in the wind. He and his men have now boarded a schooner and sloop. These shallow-bottomed vessels allow him to navigate the tricky channel at the east of the harbour. As Woods Rogers' ship sits, stuck in the sand for two hours, he has plenty of time to take in the state of the town that will be his capital. The putrid smell of rotting carcasses assails his nostrils. He shakes his head at the ruined fortress and dilapidated docks. This might be harder than he thought. Dr. Manishak Powell is a cultural historian and an authority on pirates. Nassau had been sacked repeatedly and it had also been subject to natural disasters. So the town itself, I think, was in pretty uneven shape at best. There had been no investment in Nassau's infrastructure from the local colonial controllers. And so that's what he was trying to build up, was to get the ports in better shape and to get the roads in better shape and to try to make it a place that trade could happen in a more regular way. That's why pirates were able to get such a foothold in NASA was that it had been neglected to the extent that nobody else wanted to make the investments. Roger's first task is to establish law and order. Vane's departure with the rump of die-hard pirates will make this easier. And Rogers has a plan. He brought in a lot of colonists with him. He brought about 130 men with their wives and children. And the vast majority of them were actually Protestant refugees. 
coming from places like France, Switzerland, and parts of Germany where they had been expelled or exiled due to their religion. So this was a good chance for them to have a fresh start. But the situation is precarious. Vane's brief ascendancy must have encouraged many pirates to go back to their old ways. Now Rogers has to win them back all over again and build a more law-abiding way of life. He also needs their help to reconstruct Nassau. Once again, the king's pardon proves persuasive, and he has the authority to grant freedom at the stroke of a pen, as well as a fleet of warships and a company of soldiers to back him up. Eric J. Dolan is author of Black Flag's Blue Waters, the epic history of America's most notorious pirates. When Woods Rogers stepped off of his ship and waved the king's pardon, part of the reason that so many pirates, initially I think something on the order of 500 pirates stepped forward and took the pardon was because they could see the handwriting on the wall. There were fewer and fewer big scores. There were more naval ships in the vicinity and pirates weren't stupid. They got news about the broader world they could see that many of their fellow pirates were being hanged throughout the Atlantic. They could see that their business model wasn't working as well. And I think that predisposed a lot of them to decide to get out of business. At 10 a.m. on Sunday, July 27th, Governor Rogers is rowed ashore in the Delicia's longboat. Each of the warships he passes fires off an 11-gun salute in his honor. Anyone watching from the harbor will be left in no doubt of the importance of the man coming ashore, or of the power backing him. Still, he's surprised by what confronts him as he lands. It's an extraordinary sight. Two lines of pirates form an honor guard leading from the quayside to the fortress. While Rogers moves along the line, the pirates fire their muskets over his head in celebration. Rogers himself writes of the welcome he receives. I landed and took possession of the fort, where I read out His Majesty's commission in the presence of my officers, soldiers, and about 300 of the people here, who received me under arms and readily surrendered, showing them many tokens of joy for the reintroduction of government. Mind you, history is written by the victors. Rogers believes his victory is close at hand. But despite the warm welcome, it will not be plain sailing for the new governor. The stench of the untreated hides seems to be an omen of something rotten at the heart of the colony. A mysterious sickness, probably cholera, quickly ravages Rogers' company. He writes in a letter that as many as 86 soldiers, sailors, and passengers died soon after their arrival. The surgeon and master of the Milford are among the dead. And now Rogers falls ill himself. But the high fever and twisting agony in his guts are the least of Woods Rogers' worries. He hears that one of the ships he brought from England, the Buck, has turned pirate while en route to Havana. Another humiliation. It seems the lure of piracy is still strong, and with Charles Vane still at large, the threat will persist. What's more, war with Spain is brewing once again, 
There are even reports that the Spanish are preparing an imminent attack on New Providence and the Bahamas. It must seem like a cruel joke. After all, it was the previous war with Spain that had sparked this golden age of piracy. With the odds mounting against him, it must occur to Woods Rogers that taking Nassau might have been the easy part. Holding on to it may prove more difficult. Next week on Real Pirates. Woods Rogers must act quickly to quell the pirate population of Nassau. He faces enemies on all sides, and rumors abound that Charles Vane is planning his revenge. Meanwhile, Vane must overcome his own problems, facing pirate hunters and hostile ports. Piracy is getting harder by the day. Vane knows that he serves at the pleasure of his crew, and desperate times create desperate men. Find out next week on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes, developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast, produced by McAllister Bexon, written by Roger Morris. Sound supervisor Tom Pink, edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matias Torres Sole. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 